Okay, so after a story like that, I got nothing. <laughs> Thanks, Rosalind. <laughs> Let us pray. Oh God, our help in ages past. Open our minds and hearts that as your scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We began a um, summer sermon series today titled The Fruit of the Spirit, and those fruit are found in Galatians, um, fifth chapter. It's important to know the context of that letter in order to get the punch of these uh, fruit that Paul lists. The area of Galatia is a region, it's like Virginia, uh, and there are several churches that Paul established in his first missionary journey. So these are the oldest churches. These are the earliest churches. These are the first communities of Christians chiseled out in the world with this brand new thing. And they don't have church buildings and budgets and staff. They just meet in homes. And Paul has established these churches in small towns and then moved on. But now he's writing back this letter of Galatians, maybe in fact uh, the oldest document in your New Testament. Older than the Gospels that, were, that came later, because this letter written to the very first churches would be that old document of this is what Christianity is. So this is a very important letter, and I would encourage you to read it uh, over the summer. It's a very short read. But he's writing this letter because as he left and he established this message of the gospel, there's become a fox in the hen house, if you know what I mean. Somebody has come along to undo what Paul did. And they are Jewish Christians who are called Judaizers. And in essence, their argument is you must first become a Jew before you can be a Christian. Meaning, you know, the men have to go through circumcision. You all have to abide to, abide to the uh, laws of Moses and to come under the covenant of Abraham. Then you can receive the Messiah. Only then. And Paul argues against that when he writes these words. There's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, and here's the kicker, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That is a radical argument. And it was a big deal in the New Testament it stayed a big deal whether Gentiles could actually become Christians without first having to become Jews. And for a Jew, this is unthinkable. And I can understand their position, actually, because our ancestors go all the way back to Abraham through Egypt, through the wilderness, to, you know, to the promised land, to the exile, back to the, the whole thing. And then you just want to come in. Without having to go through all that, I think not. And this is the context to which Paul wrote back to these small little communities in Galatia, making his case for Christianity without having to first become Jewish. Now, the text for all these sermons that I'm preaching on the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in this letter come from just two verses. And so every sermon, I only have... This is my, these are my two verses. So by the end of the summer, 
You will know these two verses by heart. You can spit them out anywhere you are. Here it is. By contrast, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is no law against such things. It just strikes me, if you've got this big argument on the table and you're really trying to get something established, why would you use a metaphor as simplistic as fruit? This is a complicated issue. Dr. Richard Hayes from uh, Duke Divinity School, in studying this text, just writes a very simple sentence. I mean, it's one of those things you read it and you go, yeah. He writes this, fruit cannot be humanly manufactured. Well, that is so simplistic, and yet it is the crux of Paul's argument. The fruit of the Spirit, which is the very nature of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He's describing the personality and character of God. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in us as a work of God and not by our own righteousness. This is Paul's argument. And these fruits are the very character of Jesus himself. When you think of Jesus, when you see Jesus, you're seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control. This is his nature. And his nature is the nature of God who is incarnate in human flesh in Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So this character of God grows within you, not by your own doing, but by a work of God that's going on in you, in spite of you, for you. We are not self-made Christians. So this is the stake in the ground that Paul is driving right in the middle of the Galatian uh, kind of population. He's got a a stake that that big around it's seven foot tall and he's pile driving it right in the middle of the ground saying that cannot be moved. There is no other Christianity. You don't have to become first a Jew in order to be a Christian. This that I'm proclaiming, Paul says, is not a human endeavor at all. It is not by works. So this isn't about being good, and it's not about being religious. We participate in this process, but we do not initiate this process. That's the difference. So when you look at the list of fruits and how he's describing this nature and character of God that is born within us without our own works or righteousness, do you think it's intentional that he started the list with the word love? Love's the engine that drives a whole train. It's because of love that God sent Christ into the world. Imagine a world without love. Just take love out today. Let's just say, let's pretend we can just take all the love out of the world and just whisk it away. Well, you couldn't have marriage. I mean, some people try. But it's hard enough to stay married with love. For some people, not me. Well, 
it would be impossible to love children the way you were talking about in this story. I mean, children go wayward and they do crazy things and it's prom night and all that. And you got to deal with that. How would you sustain a family if you didn't have the capacity to love? And there'd be no forgiveness. You couldn't let anything go. Because there'd be no love. So I'd hold you for everything you ever did to me. I'd never let it go. I'd die in anger before I did. Because there'd be no love. There'd be no care for the aging. There'd be no care for the poor. There'd be no church. If there weren't love. Oh, it's not an accident that Paul started the list. He did it on purpose. If you want to talk about the nature and character of God, you have to start with love or the rest of it won't make any sense. And we've come to use the word like we use dish towels. I mean, we say things like, you know, I love ice cream. I love the beach. I I love my dog. I saw that bumper sticker the other day. And then there was the one next to it said, uh, I don't care for cats. Um, Why would you put those bumpers? I don't know. (laughs) Man, you went to a lot of trouble to let me know that. You know, you you say things like, we love this house. Don't you love this house? I love that painting. You know. See, humans talk about love on different levels, all kinds of different levels. And we're capable of feeling some love, some emotions. We, We have physical attractions. She's beautiful. He's handsome. I just love her. We have infatuations. Our endorphins explode in our brain. It's actually a chemical thing. If you wait five minutes, you'll get over it. But anyway, we have infatuations. We feel nostalgia, like I just want to go back to this time in my life when it was so good. We can even feel lust, but... None of that, none of it is what Paul's talking about when he starts to list off with love as a part of the character and nature and fruit of the Spirit of God. He's talking about something else. You know, there are a number of growing, uh, there's a growing number of people today who will say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, and people will say this to me when they find out I'm a minister and I'm at a, a party or an airport or something, and I know it's coming, you know. <laughs> They'll say, what do you do? And I'm always tempted to go, uh, let me think of something else. Because uh, I know where this is going to go. And then we'll talk, oh, so you're a minister, like of a church? I'll go, yeah, like of a church. We still have those, you know. I know you haven't seen one in a long time, but yeah, that's what we, like a real church. And then as the conversation goes on and on, they say, well, you know, don't you think it, you know, it's just possible to be spiritual without being religious? I think I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't know what they mean by that. I mean, what is it to be spiritual? I don't know. But I know that if it doesn't mean this kind of love that Paul's talking about, then it pales in comparison to what Christians proclaim. This isn't about feeling a warm feeling at a sunset. I can worship God in a sunset. You know what I want to ask people who say that? I I can worship God on the trail hiking, you know. I say, well, of course you can. There's no people there. It's hard to love God when you have all these people messing it up. 
I mean, you need to come to church. Now, that's a test of love. But they say, I I just worship God in the sunset. And I want to go, yeah, but here's the Christian question. Can you worship God in a hurricane? Oh, I don't know about that now. Yeah, well, that's what the church does. I mean, you think I don't feel God's presence in a sunset like that's never happened to me? Of course it has. The real question for you is whether you feel the presence of God when everything around you is coming apart. Is that spiritual? Is that what you're talking about? Because I can buy into that. Paul's talking about a love that will stand in the face of death and not move. It's the kind of love we ask for at a wedding. Right here. Have you ever noticed in our wedding, we never ask a couple, and we didn't ask you when you got married. We never ask, do you love each other? That's not in the book. Nowhere. Because the church is smarter than that. Of course you love each other. Look at you. He's handsome. He's all dressed up. She's beautiful. You've never seen her that pretty. You never will again. I mean, this is... <laughs> you know, it's really fun being an interim. Uh, <laughs> just kind of say things and leave. Um, you know, just wait till you both go home. Uh, but of course you love each other. We're not going to ask you that. Do you, Bob, love Sally? Yep, I do. No, no, the church, she's smarter than that. The church asked this question. Will you love each other. And then we throw the kitchen sink at you. Have you ever noticed that? We think of everything bad we can say and we say it at your wedding. And you have no clue because you're standing up here in a trance. All you're thinking about is the party. The church is drilled down deep with this stake in the ground and we ask you, will you love each other? And then we say in plenty and in want. In joy, but also in sorrow. When both of you are caring for your aging parents and your parents are dying and you're both grieving. When you lose one of your children, God forbid, can you love each other even in sorrow? Oh, it's a tough nut the church puts on you. Will you love each other in sickness? Not the flu. But chronic illness in your later life, perhaps. My mother um, lived her final years with Alzheimer's. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And we moved her to Charlotte to be close to us. And the good people at Sharon Towers, a Presbyterian home in Charlotte, they took care of my mother and they did a wonderful job. And early on, when she was first there and I visited her, I kept noticing this elderly man sitting in the hallway with his wife in a wheelchair who also had Alzheimer's, and he was holding her hand. She was staring off into space. There was no eye contact, no conversation, no connection between them. And every time I visited my mother, he was there. 
And he sits in the hallway and simply holds this woman's hand. So one day I went over and introduced myself, and then I found out he was actually a member of my congregation. And so I tried to say something pastoral, you know. And I said, Bill, it must be very hard for you to come here every day knowing that Lucy doesn't even know who you are. And then he said something I will never, ever forget. He said, but I know who she is. In sickness and in health. Is that spiritual? Oh, I'll buy some if it is. That's real love. That's the kind of love that we can't manufacture It's the kind of love that God puts in us that a man will sit every day in an Alzheimer's unit and hold his wife's hand who no longer knows her. And he says, it doesn't matter if she doesn't know me, I know her. And then he said, we did say, preacher, oh, in sickness and in health until death us do part. Oh, I don't think it's an accident at all that Paul put the word love right at the head. If you want to talk about the character and nature of God that is born within us, you got to start with love. Because it's a fruit of the spirit, not little s, my spirit, but big s, God's spirit born in me. I'm not capable of doing this stuff. I've run out of love after a while. Humans run out of love after a while. Even in mission work, you run out of love after a while. You go and you go and you go and you try to help people and it's just, it turns into a rat's nest. You just can't do it. And I've seen church groups just pack it up and come home because we're out. We tried our little fix it up deal and it doesn't work. And sooner or later, your human tank runs out of gas and you better have some God tank or you're not going anywhere else. What we're doing in communion today, by the way, is all about love. But it's confusing to a lot of people. Seems so strange to take a pinch of bread and a splash of Welch's grape juice. And then sit here as if something important were going on. And if you brought in a bunch of Starbuckites, is that a word? Starbuckites. And you just brought them in today and put them along the sides and filled up the spot and said, um, you know, we know you don't go to church and all. Uh, You're spiritual but not religious. But would you come in here and watch us while we take communion? Wouldn't that be interesting? And probably they would leave and say, those people are weird. I mean, they took a pinch of bread and and a splash of juice and sat there like something holy was going on. Are they crazy? And I would say, yeah, they are. We are. Because what they just did was took the symbols of the very body and blood of Jesus and swallowed them. We're digesting Christ. 
His very nature being born in us, something we cannot do. Fruit cannot be humanly manufactured. We're swallowing the love of God and hoping it produces something in me that I can't produce for myself. That I have a kind of love growing in me that's not mine. That's bigger than me. That's more powerful, more inclusive, more full of justice and peace and righteousness than the kind of love that I could conjure up on some day when I happen to feel good or see the right sunset. Hurricane love, death love, the kind of love that'll stand over a six foot hole in the ground and proclaim eternal life. That is what the church proclaims in this world. That's our stake in the ground. It can't be moved. There is no other brand of Christianity. That's it. You don't need to work harder to try to love God. You need to receive the love of God so you can love it all. That's his argument. And that's the truth. Thank God for this love poured out for all people, not just for us, everybody. This love bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than the church. It belongs to everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.